This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone, my name is Connie Dolan. I'm one of the faculty with the University of Maryland PhD program and we are having another one of our PhD program podcasts. And I'm joined today by Dr. Lynn McPherson who is the director of the palliative care program at the University of Maryland. And we are joined today by one of my dear colleagues, Jeannie Tuig. Jeannie has been in healthcare for many years and also in hospice and palliative care. Uh, she has a master's in public administration she started out with um, working uh, somewhat in federally qualified health centers and then also then joined in with Ira Biok and working in the promoting excellence uh, time period where Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, was offering a lot of money for us to push palliative care forward and she can talk about that. Um, and then she was at uh, the Duke University and looking at spiritual care and working with Dr. Richard Payne on that. Um, and then in the last number of years, she's been working with CAPSI on the Center to Advance Palliative Care on community-based palliative care. And so I'm just delighted because I know Jeannie has such a range of experience and really knows some of the creativity that was going on of people kind of working within a framework and how people interpreted that. So welcome, Jeannie. Thank you, Connie. It's nice to be with you and Lynn. So do you want to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what you have been doing in palliative care and your kind of role in its evolution or what you think is important for people to understand about your background coming into it as well? Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, it's interesting when, when you contacted me about this and I started thinking back, I realized it's been 25 years really since... I've been working in palliative care and how much has changed since then. Um, would, would, it, would you like me to, to talk about that early experience? Or? Yes, that would be great. Mm -hmm. I first got involved um, at the national level around 1996 when Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, was funding to a vast degree improvement in how Americans died. And, and that was an outgrowth of a study that they had done called the support study that you know well, Connie, and you too, I'm sure Lynn, um, that, that looked at, um, I think Americans' preferences and prognosis around end of life and realized uh, what an abysmal uh, environment it is for, dying people in America. And that prompted the foundation to really pour a lot of resources into improving how Americans die. And in those days, we, didn't, we weren't really even using the word palliative care. The initiative that I was deputy director of with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was called Promoting Excellence in End-of-Life Care. And I think now probably we would have been calling it Promoting Excellence in Palliative Care. But then that, that even that terminology wasn't um, as accessible to us. And, and the, the purpose of that program was to 
or the language that we used at that time was take the best of hospice and move it upstream. And we wanted to take a look at um, uh, how to diminish that, what we call the, the um, terrible choice of when someone who needed this kind of support that hospice gave, but wasn't yet ready to um, either have their physician sign off that they were actively dying or they themselves were not in that place. So it put folks in the position of, um, they had to give up curative treatment in order to get hospice. So the movement at the time um, that has now become the palliative care movement is uh, the, the um, how to think about and demonstrate the ability to provide concurrently the best of what hospice had to offer for folks who were not ready or appropriate for hospice. So that goes back 25 years um, at this at this point. It, it, it was a little shocking to me when I did the math last night when I was thinking about our podcast and thought, well, where'd those years go? Um, so at any rate, uh, we, we learned a lot then. Those were demonstration projects that Robert Wood Johnson was funding through Promoting Excellence. And the demonstration projects were testing models of delivering care. And they were in everything from academic medical centers, cancer centers to truly bush frontier Alaska and all points in between, looking at either special populations or um, certain diseases or certain venues of care, prisons, for example. Another project was with the seriously and persistently mentally ill. So in a complete patchwork of types of patients, but all with that one intent of um, how do we get uh, the needed care, right care at the right time to, to these folks. So um, that's for me where it, it started, my, my work with um, looking nationally. Uh, well, and I think that it was so formative, Jeannie, because I, I um, so I, I realized that my own library is like an archive because I have all the reports, the originals that came out of promoting excellence. So for our students to know that there was something on ALS, there was something on kidney disease. Um, I think the work that was done on mental illness, I think was with Dr. Fody here in Massachusetts and right. has been done since then, right? I mean, it was so important. Um, and sort of really thinking about what does it mean? I mean, we take for granted that we've moved into different populations, but um, I think what you're speaking to is that the model was so cancer-based and that promoting excellence was really saying we've got to move a different way with that. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah, the 22, well, we funded 22 projects um, to demonstrate in, as I said, a variety of venues, a variety of geographic areas, etc., and then we did four that, in addition to that, were that were specific to ICUs. And I that, that was around the first time I met you. Yes. And uh, when you were with Mass General. And then um, we also did several um, pediatric projects. Then we also did um, eight different work groups. And that's what you were alluding to, AIDS, um, uh, end-stage renal disease, um, uh, a whole variety, oh, surgery. American College of Surgeons. And what those work groups did was pulled together leaders in that particular segment of healthcare and had them chart a course forward. And it resulted in tremendous policy change and uh, just a new vision 
for what can happen outside or beyond the scope of just what, um, how, how cancer patients could benefit. And I think that what happened then um, was all of those demonstration projects were written up in individual articles in this big series in Journal of Palliative Medicine. And that helped get word out to the field. And again, it started to create this vision of something can be done and um, with at least a framework of what program design could look like. And here we are all these years later, still working on uh, community-based palliative care program design and, and what makes for sustainable programs. And so it's been a journey. And so far, students, um, uh, Jeannie and I actually have worked together on um, uh, helping programs start this. And I think the, the elements of program design, whether it's inpatient or community, um, have really kind of come together with what you've heard various speakers talk about that you can have the passion, which is really important, and you can have the clinical expertise, but you've got to have in place um, a business model for sustainability. Um, and so you kind of have to have the heart and the dollar sign together. Um, um, to do this. And so Jeannie has right. really been um, really helpful in, in helping programs understand that if you don't do that, you won't survive. Or if you skip the needs assessment, it will come back to haunt you because you will still have to do it. Um, so I think that those are things that for our students, you know, wherever you go and you're going to start an initiative, the principles of a needs assessment, you have to do, whether it's a palliative care program per se, or whether it's starting some sort of education project or whatever, um, because if you miss that step, um, you know, it, it really decreases the probability that you will be successful. So. And the other thing that is, I think back about it, that pro promoting excellence in end-of-life care did as a national office of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And at that time, and there's a, we can talk more about the context of what was happening in the late 90s, but at the time, RWJ also funded um, three other national offices. One was located at the Midwest Bioethics Center in um, Kansas City, and that was a it's called the Community State Partnership to Improve End-of-Life Care. And, and that pulled together coalitions to think about community and how communities and state policy could come together. Another one was called Last Acts, and that was more communication-oriented. Like, how can we, as a country, think about how we communicate around this thing that nobody wants to talk about, death and dying and, you know, um, why do people shy away from when they hear the word hospice? How do people even understand what the word palliative care means? And, and so at any rate, Last Hex was a communication effort um, that was extremely successful. And then the fourth um, national office that RWJ had at the time was the Center to Advance Palliative Care, where you and I you know, um, continue on as consultants. But one of the things that my office did, and, and I would um, intend that each of those national program offices learned in these early days was the importance of cultivating leadership. At the time, the field of palliative care was so young that most everybody was an emerging leader. And, and now some of those folks that were emerging then with support from philanthropy and also support with tribe building, um, folks were able to come together, share knowledge, gain momentum, gain traction, and um, uh, grow a field by virtue of how they learned to lead. So I, I and, and I think you know this whole idea of, of, of palliative care leadership is something that 
you know, is as important today as it, as it was then, uh, as the field has grown. And that's what we think that, you know, a lot of our students, they are going to be leaders. I mean, they, they're stepping into this. This is a PhD. Just by coming into this, you know, you're taking, um, you're stepping into something new, right? Um, and so you have to be brave and take a, be taking a risk to step into a new program. Um, but we, we know that we want them to be leaders, but we also know that, um, that they were adults. And so they have to kind of think about where they wanna lead, right? Like what's, the, what's the interest yeah. they're gonna have the passion about? Yeah. Um, so I think that's all really important. Um, you know, so I think it was interesting because all of us, I mean, I, I remember kind of being of that and, um, and working on the um, palliative care and the critical care unit. And that was um, a really interesting time. I think now we sort of take it for granted, particularly with COVID about how much palliative care has been in the ICU, but you know, that it was a big shift um, of, of getting that attention. Um, so, you know, when I think about when that, the Robert Wood Johnson shifted their focus from palliative care. Um, you know, I think that was uh, hard for a lot of us because it had been so successful and it was really a way of bringing together the community. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about when that shifted and, and then what you decided to do next? I mean, did you sort of feel like the field had enough groundwork from promoting excellence that there was places for people to grow or, you know, kind of what were your thoughts at that time? Well, it's interesting because um, I had to learn that foundations have lifespans for their initiatives. And surely we all would have wished that that level of support would have continued longer. Mm -hmm. um, but RWJ invested many years and many, many, many millions of dollars um, in a very profound strategy to improve end of life. And at some point, because the issues throughout healthcare are so many, um, they need to, any foundation needs to turn its attention to other issues. And so their idea was uh, they had well seeded the landscape and then it's time for what will grow to grow. And, and um, because sustainability and proving the value to other stakeholders beyond a foundation is critically important. So I think for all of us at that time, there was like that, oh, holy smoke, RWJ um, is coming to the end of its philanthropy um, in end of life care, will the field crumble? Well, no, it didn't. And I think because of the, a lot of reasons, one was all the work that had been done over that maybe a 10, 12 year span of time, but also because of this whole idea about creating leaders and those leaders could carry forth. And also because part of RWJ's strategy involved research. And so there was good data to draw upon, which helped um, with sustainability of programs or helped give programs a way to um, show their value to their stakeholders. So there was research. The other thing that had happened in the course of time was there was a tremendous effort to change how medical schools um, and, and um, uh, were, were teaching about end of life. And remarkable changes had been made in medical schools, nursing schools, um, a fellowship programs in all of this. And so there was, there was a greater um, 
knowledge base, a more broad knowledge base um, and, and um, uh, greater awareness to kind of carry the, the movement forward. And other funders did step in as well. But so I think that um, it, was, it was validating to see that things didn't crumble then. And some of the, the things that really were impressive that happened over time that sort of built this into a sustainable movement were things like um, palliative care becoming a medical subspecialty. That's huge, you know, absolutely huge. Um, other things that happened in the course of those years was the creation of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. That started as just a small cluster of of leaders now it's I can't I, I don't even know the number of how many members that has and each national hospice organization formed and then expanded into an HPCO national hospice and palliative care organization so there were oh the Institute of Medicine came out with approaching death you know a, a, which was an expose in some ways about how Americans were dying so a lot happened um oh another main thing that happened in that period was the um, release of the first national consensus project um, on quality guidelines for palliative care in 2004. Do I have that right, Connie? We're yes, I know the exact date. <laughs> <laughs> but things like that, that we're establishing standards and, and making this amorphous thing called palliative care into a reality as real as being a medical subspecialty, as, as real as having national guidelines, um, you know, as, as real as having professional organizations um, that are advancing the cause. So yes, it was, it was difficult when RWJ um, lessened their, their um, philanthropic support, but um, the field was primed. Well, I think, you know, you give several lessons to the students. One is, um, you know, if you're going to be in palliative care, you need to understand um, funders. So it could be insurers um, who are going to pay, but also philanthropy and understanding foundations. And that when you're going to approach foundations, that it's going to be time limited. They're wanting you to get something solid so that they, you have a basis to continue, right? Um, so I think there's that. And then I, I think you're right. I mean, there were so many pieces to that of um, the different organizations. Um, the, I, I, I can speak to, you know, working on the consensus guidelines and, and my own experience of even the, since I did the references for the first edition, what we had as evidence, you know, I was pulling from all type of stuff because we didn't have anything really in palliative care, you know, and by the third edition, which I edited, you know, it, we, I could take from all of the palliative care because in over the course of those 10 years, you know, we developed a, a base. So, you know, you speak to the different parts about kind of growing up as an entity. And I think people understanding that, um, you know, hospice is, you know, 60 years old or so. Um, it depends on whether you decide the 70s or the 80s when the benefit. Um, and you know, palliative care as a recognition of a specialty, you know, has really only been, you know, in the last 10 or 15, 20 years. And so unlike other specialties, um, well, I guess there are, you know, addiction medicine is probably coming into its own. Um, there are so there are specialties, but those take a while to kind of get established, right? And palliative care has right. sort of moved into that. Um, what are some of the other things like, so, you know, you, 
promoting excellence closed. You did a great job of tying up all that. I remember all the end of the reports that came out of kind of like the summaries and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that was, um, you know, interesting because you've gotten to work with Dr. Bayak, who everybody knows had been quite a leader and and coming out of emergency medicine, but um, doing all that, you know, and then you jumped into kind of a different space. And so what was that like for you? Because you sort of saw this change. And then as a leader in palliative care, you were having to kind of choose about where you were going to support next from this kind of administrative place. Yeah. Well, you know, life is such a serendipitous thing. Um, I first met Ira um, Bayak when I ran the community health center in Missoula, where I live, Montana. And Ira was, um, we, we had a lot of community physicians who served as volunteers and would do different clinic hours for us. And Ira was one of those. And that's how I first got to know him in a completely different capacity. And actually before he was such a national figure in all of this. And then he was really um, starting to devote his um, professional career to understanding and serving Americans at the end of life. And he had a real strong community focus. In fact, he started this thing called the Missoula Demonstration Project, which is another important piece of the history of all of this. And MDP, as we called it, it later became known as uh, the Life's End Institute. But that looked at the community, in this case, Missoula, Montana, as a laboratory for how a community can think about um, end of life issues, whether it's legally or in the school systems or in our art, um, et cetera. So MDP was a, a very vibrant um, part of community oriented um, attention to, to palliative care, end of life care. So at any rate, I wound up work, I got to know Ira through community health centers. And then when he was asked to work for Robert Wood Johnson to lead promoting excellence, he asked if I would join him on that. Well, serendipitous life, Richard Payne was one of the members are, of um, promoting excellence's advisory board. And I had become just a huge fan of him and the work that he was doing in um, as a, a um, uh, cancer doc, neurology, um, uh, a real leader there, and also with a real strong understanding of community and um, particularly African-American communities and um, how to take a look at racial disparities. And so he became the head of the Duke Institute on Care at the End of Life and asked me, because my work at Promoting Excellence was winding up, to to join him there at Duke. And that was, a, what was attractive to me about that is, is um, the Duke Institute was housed in the Divinity School. And the reason for that were various, but it was the only end of life institute at an academic center that was in a Divinity School. And it really gave us license to take a look at um, the, the whole person. In fact, there, there was a saying there at the time that um, uh, uh, death is a spiritual experience with medical implications as opposed to a medical experience with some spiritual implications. So we, we were able to um, take a look at that as, as well as, and so my work in program design then um, was fortified by this um, enhanced vision of 
the whole person nature, the what goes on inside the person. And from a context period, there was a lot of people thinking about that at that time. Um, Christine Polkowski at um, Georgetown, uh, I'm sorry, George Washington Institute of Spirituality and Health, that, that was formed to them. And there was a big national meeting, oh, probably maybe in around, I don't know, 2007, 2008, where leaders from around the country came together just to try to define what do we even mean by spirituality at the end of life? What language are we going to use? How do you, what standards should there be around that? So again, it just shows how the field, you know, in that time period was grappling with a lot of issues that have formed the foundation of how we think about things now. So we did a lot of work with, um, um, chaplains and chaplain organizations and thinking about how to expand their uh, clinical work to um, as partners with other palliative care team members, etc. So when you kind of think about, you know, so you finish those two projects and you're there, I mean, it, it, where do you kind of feel like we are now, uh, given all of those roots that you've been involved in, um, where do you think in terms of where we are in hospice and palliative care, um, in a solid place? Are we still moving towards something? Are we missing something? Would you do anything differently? Um, in the, gosh, there's, there's a lot in that question. I think <laughs> one thing that I've learned is that movements take time. And, and this has been a movement. It's a huge cultural shift that has been in process over the last 25, 30 years. Because at the heart of it is that cultural aspect of how do we as Americans think about our own mortality and um, learn to talk about it and have dialogue with our um, providers as partners in these discussions and decisions. And so I view it as a movement. I think for me, it's been eye-opening to realize that there's tipping points all along the way that help push a movement forward, but it takes time to make cultural change. And so the impatient part of me um, is, uh, um, is wanting to be farther along than we are now. And um, that said, in the last year has, I think, shown all of us how far palliative care has come. And I think you know, the, the reason I say in the last year, I think the pandemic has elevated awareness of palliative care and the field was able to respond. The field is so positioned that it really was in a good place to not just um, attend to the palliative care needs of seriously ill patients, but also to um, step up and in new and more powerful ways, um, support colleagues who were uh, attending to the needs of folks impacted by COVID. So I, I think that you know, the impatient part of me says, geez, how can we still be trying to define what palliative care means? And, and how can there still be resistance on the part of some clinicians um, and administrators and funders to uh, what palliative care offers. But that's only when I fail to stop and look back and see really how, how much is in place. 
And uh, when you think of things like, I'm not sure um, in 2021 what the exact percentage is, but I remember around 2020, it was a full 95% of hospitals over 300 beds have palliative care programs. Holy smoke. You know, that's, a, that's a huge benchmark. So there's been tremendous change. And then CAPSI's mapping project, which sought to map where there's community-based programs shows an amazing, if you envision pins in a map of the United States, there's pins everywhere. Um, so um, yes, we want palliative care everywhere. We want it to be easily accessible for patients to have um, high quality palliative care and it is happening. And so I think that um, my prediction for the future is that increased awareness that we've been able to um, more concretely see in the last year is just going to con continue. Um, I think both patients and families are increasingly aware and familiar with um, how to ask for palliative care. I think there's been a tremendous um, expansion of what we would call primary palliative care, where um, physicians with other specialties, primary care and, and other specialties have an increasing um, understanding of palliative care and bring that as a first line to um, patients who need it. And I think that we're learning through the work you and I are doing, Connie, with CAPSI and the work of many others around the country, we're learning with more precision what high quality palliative care programs look like. And we can define it better. And the better we can define it, the more sustainably those programs can be um, crafted. So I, I'm hopeful for the future. I think that we need to continue to expand <laughs> access both geographically and um, demographically. And we still have a, a lot of, um, uh, a lack of equity in terms of who has access to palliative care because of race or um, ethnicity or geography or sexual preference or you know the, the, the whole gamut of whatever um, causes folks to be um, more marginalized and underserved by our health system. I think we, we've got um, great work still to be done in that realm. And I think all of this expansion of palliative care, that would be my dream, is going to be dependent upon progressive um, financing and uh, more um, uh, innovation in terms of how palliative care is funded. And so we need to continue the policy work and the, the, the work with insurers uh, to better understand what palliative care is and how it benefits and therefore how and why um, the value that it brings is worthy of, of um, significant funding. So uh, work to do and, um, uh, but I think springboarding from a very, very solid foundation. Can so I ask a couple things? Sure, go ahead. So I think we would agree that when you look at internal medicine as a practice that's been around 4,000 years, and palliative care has been around, what, 35, 40 years? So I think we would both agree, all three of us would agree that we've made tremendous strides. And you've mentioned primary palliative care a couple of times now. You've mentioned physicians both times. Do you think we're doing an adequate job in our schools of nursing, pharmacy, social work, medicine, chaplaincy in teaching these young providers about the principles of palliative care? 
you know, I, I think, Lynn, that that has certainly changed from when I first started. Um, and so there's a, again, there's there's been tremendous work that's done, but is it sufficient? No, I don't think it is. Mm -hmm. I think there's so many ways um, in, in all the professional schools. Mm -hmm. And I can say, going back to my work at Duke, you know, it, it was, um, uh, it was a subset of those students in Duke Divinity School who were, they had to be pretty self-motivated at the time to, to, to learn about end-of-life care and palliative care as, as, as we would wish. I think there's tremendous work that needs to be done. And also too, um, post uh, uh, training, you, you think of all the clinicians that um, would benefit from ongoing education, ongoing awareness of the principles of palliative care. The reason why that is so important is because there's um, too few specialists in palliative care. Absolutely. And we need to be able to reserve those specialists for those patients who need specialty palliative care. There's so many patients who need um, good palliative care at the onset, the same way they need good cardiology mm -hmm. care or good internal medicine. You know, they, they, so um, to answer your question, no, there's more work that needs to be done. And how do you think we're doing in terms of transitions in care from palliative care and acute care institution to either community-based palliative care or to hospice? Ah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because when I was thinking about what the future holds, to me, one of the most important parts is exactly that. I think as our healthcare system as a whole, one place not, you know, beyond even palliative care, one place where um, our health system, <laughs> it, it breaks down as a system is in care management and adequate transitions of care. And I think palliative care is, is focused holistically in those ways and understands um, the, the interrelationship that happens among disciplines as patients transition throughout the system, but um, uh, but more work needs to be done there. I think that there's uneven boundaries between palliative care and hospice, you know, where that territory can get mm -hmm. confusing and dicey for patients as well as for the clinicians serving those yeah. patients. Um, same is true between um, with nursing home, long-term care settings. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's that good management of transitions and good management of care that um, translates to quality, Absolutely. especially when I think about the patient and family experience. I, um, my guess is, well, I know when I talk to patients and families around the country and listen to their gripes, at the heart of it is this sense of um, feeling very alone with a lot coming at them and nobody helping them navigate. Yeah. I think sometimes people on both sides of that fence don't even, aren't even terribly knowledgeable about where the patient's coming from or going to. I know years ago, several years ago, I was preparing a talk on transitions in care from the hospital palliative care to home-based hospice care from a medication management perspective with my bestie. And I thought, oh, this is gonna be easy peasy. It was almost the end of our friendship because I was from a hospice perspective saying, why didn't you take care of this 
when they were in the hospital from a palliative, the palliative care team. Why didn't you stop these drugs that are medically futile? And then she had the same misperceptions about, well, why don't you do this in hospice? So it, it was, it was, we were really going out and hammer and tongs. So I think people need to be better educated. And I think people don't have that safety. Patients don't have that safety net of knowing that where you're coming from has talked to where you're going to. Yeah. I love that example, because if you think about you and your colleague having different opinions about what should have been done, imagine the patient and family. And yes, exactly. They're, the, they're sort of the victim of that confusion. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think, you know, I would say one of the things that's interesting and, and just my perspective is being one of the people who had been in hospice and then went to palliative care. I was very knowledgeable about how hospice worked the payment model, all of that, right? So I think when I went into the hospital, I was a better palliative care provider because I knew what was going on in the community. I knew that benefit upside and down. And I also knew that you knew what you need to be with community care, right? I think there is a challenge right now because we have, with few exceptions, our training for palliative care is very much from an academic medical model. People get yeah. community experiences, right? But they're not doing that. I'm, you know, trying to work on helping at least with APRNs by the nature of practice. Don't get me started. It's insane. But before APRNs now go into uh, their nursing masters, they have to they have to declare whether they're going to be inpatient or community. Okay, that's insane, right? Because you haven't even had that experience. But that's the way that it's done. And here we are, we have these people who are going to be in the community, but they aren't getting trained in the community. Right. And so it's a, a craziness. And so one of the things that I have often thought about and really tried to encourage, and, and in fact, Jeannie, when we had our grant um, for the critical care part was to do this cross training because I have people who still ask me, well, don't you need a special license to be a hospice nurse? It's like, no, it's still the same license. It's just focusing on that. And I think people don't understand. And I think we haven't done enough for people to go see what it's like from the other perspective, right? And, and then to Lynn, to your point, I, I confess one of my tasks that I hate is when I have to do medication reconciliation, particularly when I have one from what was the clinic to what was the home to what was now. And I'm like going, I don't even know which one to start with, right? right? Do I pick the one at home or am I assuming that stuff when they are in the hospital will get discharged because we're just doing it now, but you know better than both of us, the things that get started in the hospital mm -hmm. because are crazy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, the proton pump inhibitors, perfect example. Well, or a three parts of a bowel regimen or all the other vitamins. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's $10 a pill. That's $6 a pill, right? Even if palliative care knew the formulary that a hospice was likely to have, we yeah. are not going to pay for OxyContin unless there's an enormous need to use a branded product. We're going to use generic long acting morphine or methadone. So showing some sensitivity to what's coming down the pike. And one of our other interviewers, just interviewees just said, I love being able to tell the patient going to hospice, hospice will pay for all your medications. And that is, I mean, I know that CMS would like us to cover, you know, pretty much anything that is appropriate and relevant to the terminal diagnosis or any illness affecting that terminal diagnosis. But we don't actually quote pay, and I hate when nurses use that word, pay, we will or won't pay for that. Um, it's far more discerning than that. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think that, you know, Jeannie, you bring up, you know, all these interesting points that we, you were talking about where we have been and, you know, the Medicare benefit is, is hard sometimes, right? Because yeah. it's making us make these decisions and then what happens. And I think, um, for our students to understand that, you know, Jeannie and I really like people to think about their community, not in just of who the clinical providers are, but who are the service providers, who's doing nutrition, who's doing transportation, who's doing legal services, who's doing uh, translation, who does respite care, and that's going to differ from every community. And if you don't know your community resources, then that's a problem and it won't be the same because all communities are different. Um, and so I think, you know, when I think about some of the work that you've done with Robert Wood Johnson and then also, you know, working with the Duke, it's, it's really about thinking about where are these patients and meeting them and how do we get the resources to meet what they need, which in my mind, and, and I started off in hospice, so I feel like I can say this, hospice may not be right for some patients. I think that we have this sense that for um, A, that we should make all patients um, goals of care be comfort care, and that may not be what they want. Right. Um, and then we say they have to have hospice, but that's could be not in, in sync. And I think about in my own practice, um, you know, with the Temel study, and um, as you both know, 45% of those patients were mine. I had young people who told me, I am not going to hospice. I have young children. I want my story to be that I fought with them to the very end, that I did not want to die and I did not want to leave you. And, you know, I had conversations, but I also knew that when all was said and done, hospice wasn't right for them. Yeah. And, and how do we, you know, think about that, you know? I, I love that. You sort of just brought it full circle as I think about the support study that RWJ funded. And that was multi, multi-million dollar um, study in, in, I guess, the mid-90s. Right. Um, and, yeah. And um, what was it about? It was about prognosis and preferences. And the one thing that we learned was that we didn't have adequate ways to uh, even ask patients and families what it was that they wanted, much less to honor what it was that they said. And, you know, here we are, the conversation still is asking, listening, believing, supporting, you know, it's, it's, if we don't um, develop that way of knowing what patients and families want um, and really believing it and then choosing helping them choose the right plan of care to meet their desires. I mean, that, that at the heart of it, that's what it is about. Yeah. So Jeannie, in, in that sense of, um, you, you know, you've been around and you've seen so many much, what would be your, your kind of uh, indicator or uh, marker that says we've made it? Hmm. Hmm. I would love to see, um, uh, high quality palliative care available to everyone who needs it. You know, first I was going to say in every town, well, that may not be necessary, but it, that, that everyone has access to it um, in a way that uh, translates to quality. I think telehealth is going to help us a lot with that. We've, again, the pandemic has been a great boost for acceptance uh, and, and increased sophistication with telehealth. So um, but to me, it's, it's um, anyone who needs access um, to palliative care has it. And when, and when I say that, I want to 
challenge us all to think about um, broadening who that who is. I think that there's certain um, folks demographically in our country that um, are the recipients of palliative care or hospice care and or hospice care. And you know, I, I challenge all of those as providers to take a look at who's in their service area and ask themselves the question, are, are we, does our patient population reflect the demographics of our service area and think harder and better about how to get the care to folks that um, uh, traditionally have not um, received it. So uh, I would love I would love to see a broadened vision of the who and um, and just increased accessibility. Another thing I want to say, and this is inspired by what you were saying, Lynn. Um, part of my vision, I think, would be a stronger involvement of pharmacists in all of this. It's, um, in my experience, that the pharmacist is an important colleague who's sort of one step removed oftentimes, and yet they are so central to mm -hmm. the quality of care that the patient receives. That, you know, to, to, to really beef up the involvement of pharmacists on palliative care teams, I think would be a tremendous benefit I'm extending into the community. So if the inpatient palliative care team would just call the community pharmacist and say, look, Mrs. Smith is coming back home 90 miles away from the university and she's on a pretty high dose of an opiate, but this is what works for her. So we yeah. just wanted to call and loop you in and make sure that you knew this is correct and this is what does the job for her. So the pharmacist doesn't you know, say, holy moly, and make the patient feel badly, and maybe they don't right. have stock. So I, I think I agree with you. Of course, I agree with you. <laughs> so Jeannie, any other things that you would want our students who will be leaders to think about as they are going forth and becoming leaders in palliative care? Um, Gosh, a lot comes to mind with that leadership topic. One, I guess, is um, finding mentors, um, learning from each other and sharing with each other. It's, it's how we all learn and there's so much wisdom out there to grab onto. And, and the other is to, to really think holistically. Um, your discipline might be clinical, your discipline might be administrative, um, it might be research, but we need all of that. Um, and, and so a leader needs to um, not necessarily be subject matter expert in all of that, but the, develop the relationships with others so that the, uh, you know, that the, as a leader, the vision is a holistic one. Um, because like any movement, like any strategy, it's multifaceted. And, and each piece of that strategic pie is important. You know, the financial piece is important, the clinical piece, the research piece, the communication piece, the marketing piece, all of it's important. And as a leader, you, you, you um, if you can have um, colleagues that you can call upon to make sure that your vision as you lead is um, comprehensive, I, I think that's to the good of the movement. Yeah, that's great. That's, even though I think we probably do do that already better than any other discipline. I think there's still room for improvement too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we do it well um, among 
clinical disciplines. I mean, you know, in palliative care and hospice, you know, there's there's a you know the nursing's represented, um, spiritual care is represented, medicine is represented, etc. Social work, but I don't know that we always think more broadly about the the, the non-clinical parts of it, and um, it's vitally important. Well, Jeannie, this has been a delight. Um, for me too. So much. I think I knew that there was so much for people to understand um, some of the history. And as you know, I feel strongly that people need to understand that this just didn't start in the last 10 years, that there's been so much that's been built upon and different people have had um, such a big role. And you did have such a big role with RWJ and with the Duke and, and you still have a, a big role. But I think, you know, with that funding part was so important. Yeah. Um, so we're so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you so much. Ah, truly the pleasure has been mine. I, I had a very enjoyable time um, just thinking back as, as um, I was thinking about today's talk and it was, it was um, uh, very interesting for me to put it all into a certain perspective. So thank you for that opportunity. Absolutely, thank you again. Yeah. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.